there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Rob Harris, the global sports correspondent for the Associated Press, to break down the giant Super League fiasco. We've had some great guests lately, including Miguel Delaney, Paul Tenorio, and Daryl Dike. I also encourage you to check out my podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddy Adu Story. You can binge all eight episodes to your heart's content. It just got nominated for a Webby for Documentary Podcast Series. Now, here's my interview with Rob Harris. It's one of the craziest European soccer weeks of all time. The breakaway Super League with 12 of the biggest clubs in Europe has come and gone in just 48 hours. And I'm joined to discuss it now with by Rob Harris. He's the global sports correspondent for the Associated Press, and he co-hosts a terrific new podcast called Sport Unlocked with Martin Ziegler of the Times of London, which you should definitely check out. Rob, thanks for joining me. Great to join you. Lots to talk about, obviously, this week. Um, We're speaking at 9 a.m. on Wednesday, New York time. There's been a lot of news over the last two days. I'm going to assume our listeners know the basics of the Super League, the 12 big clubs that declared they were breaking away from Champions League, only to have it all fall apart almost immediately with all six English teams leading on Tuesday What would you say, Rob, are the biggest reasons that this was a giant failure in the end? Well, it was a complete failure of strategy by all the clubs. They completely misjudged the public mood. It means they launched a competition that collapsed before a ball was even kicked in it. No team ever lost a game. No team ever won the game. Although I think... um, the uh, top of the table would be AC Milan by alphabetical order. So, uh, you know, congratulations to them as the Super League champions. And it was, um, you know, just a monumental misreading of the room, the disregard for the fans and for the joy of the existing structures and the um, need to preserve them and just what it means to be a fan of a club and just what a, a, a you know a football club should be today and you know so many divisions were created throughout football by the deceptions caused by these clubs and just the um, inability to mount their case in a positive way really to launch a Super League. I think they brazenly thought they could just railroad it through without really mounting that argument and um, it so it collapses. The power of the English clubs eventually realising the benefit of being part of the existing system. Do you think in the end, like the forces that were working against the English clubs that announced this, what was more impactful in your opinion? Was it the government threats? Was it the fans? What was it? I think it was probably a combination of them all. I mean, there was a subtle shift in tone from UEFA. UEFA president Alexander Sheffrin on Monday came out very publicly attacking snakes and liars, including people like Ed Woodward at Manchester United, whose departure was also announced this week for some point this year. And also Andrea Nelly at Juventus, who these are people who just at the end of last week had assured UEFA they backed a transformation of the Champions League, which in the midst of all the chaos of news this week was actually approved from 2024 onwards, going from 32 to 36 teams, going from six group stage games to 10 in the group stage. And what we saw, though, was on all fronts opposition mounting, particularly that United statement on Sunday from Italy, Spain and 
England, the FAs and the leagues, along with UEFA, and all warning that there would be repercussions if teams did break away to join the Super League. They were threatened with expulsion, not just, obviously, from the European competitions that they didn't want to be part of anyway, but also their domestic leagues. So they couldn't be part of their existing Premier League, La Ligas and Serie A, and within the Super League. So that threat was there. And then we had the 14 remaining Premier League clubs holding a key meeting on Tuesday morning where the anger was was clear towards the six rebels. And again, they were threatened with repercussions if they did stick with this breakaway. And at the same time, there was the growing anger from fans and that manifests itself in protest at Ellen Road, where Liverpool were playing Leeds on Monday night. Then again on Tuesday at Stamford Bridge when Chelsea were about to play Brighton. And one of the things that probably would have been different if the stadiums had been full at the moment, if stadiums were allowed fans for Premier League games, then perhaps um, we would have seen an even greater level of anger, perhaps the like we normally see in Germany, often against sort of fixture, fixture scheduling and things like that. But then also on top of that, the British government weighing in so heavily it really became a a national talking point it was topping the news agenda in the uk it was taking over things like the coronavirus news conference that was being held in downing street on tuesday the first one that are actually able to hold in more than a week because of a week of royal mourning after prince philip's death and you know there's probably a bit of posturing grandstanding by boris johnson's government realizing that there was such public opposition they could sort of ride the uh, raid of populism in this case and offer things and maybe promise things that don't come to fruition, even things like adopting the 50 plus one German fan ownership model to give fans control and a say in the running of their club. But there was the threats actually of intervening in national assets, community assets and imposing laws. Um, Boris Johnson actually convened a meeting on Tuesday morning with the FA, the Premier League and fan group representatives. such fast pace this moved at where there was such a level of interest at the government level um, and it probably reflects actually quite often in England sports news issues are often top of the news agenda it doesn't um, take them to be um, in the same way the states I don't think we see things like that become national talking points things like bidding for for, for events like World Cups and Boris Johnson said to these fans that um, we would drop a legislative bomb if necessary they would drop that legislative bomb and impose laws that would um, stop the Super League happening and within that the the clubs were sort of spooked by all these factors and the opposition and the the lack of support to actually um, to force them through what has it been like for you personally covering this Super League story over the last few days with news happening all the time, how have you gone about doing your job? Um, very limited sleep is one thing. <laughs> Things <laughs> breaking on all fronts, developments the whole time, and also that sense of how real is it this time? We've got so used to endless cycles of threats of Super Leagues and breakaways every couple of years. It was um, in 2016 when they last brought in some Champions League changes that led to the four automatic places for England, for Spain, for Italy, for France, sorry, for, for Germany. And again, the threat of the Super League was, was, was there. And in January, we got hold of the document that ultimately led to this breakaway, which was containing all the key information about a potential 20-team league, 15 founder members, permanent places for them, some sort of open pathway into those five. And again, it was there. It seemed off the table again by the end of last week when we seemed to have agreement on a new Champions League format. Just a month ago, 
we'd had the hopes of that format being introduced stymied by the clubs trying to take control of UEFA's sale of the TV rights and the marketing uh, arm of the Champions League. And so it, it, it's been there. It's been an ever-present. So we're sort of left having to weigh up how serious is this? How meaningful is it throughout Sunday when speaking to various people and there's deep concern and we know this is a real plan and is something actually being instigated by the big clubs like Manchester United, Liverpool and Real Madrid. And then we're all waiting for the confirmation, the statement announcing it all. And it drops on Sunday night with this website that has a sort of a logo that perhaps doesn't fit, doesn't reflect the wealth of the owners involved that could actually, um, you know, be introduced. Uh, very sort of limited ideas. And then particularly something that I think also reflects the changing game at the moment. A lot of attention started to be poured on the lack of consideration seemingly for the women's game. A throwaway line right. in this document, which just sort of referenced they'd want to launch a women's super league as well. Which obviously completely didn't reflect the fact the different strengths of the teams in the women's game compared to the men, men's game. Liverpool relegated from the WSL in England. Right. Yes, but in the men's game being the six times uh, European champions. So then we're sort of trying to follow just what's going on with the pace of this on Monday as those behind the project are insistent that they are committed. And you look at it and you think, well, actually, you know, by this point, there's a leadership involved in, in, in the league. They're actually determined, that, you know, it's more than just threats. They have got this website, they have got this whole strategy in place. And you sort of observe and think, well, maybe this might actually sort of actually happen and they're not going to, to back down. Um, but then it became more apparent throughout Tuesday that uh, it was crumbling. Although on Wednesday, as it stands, some of the clubs have just reluctantly effectively put it on hold with a sort of half in half out with the likes of Juventus clearly attached to the prospect of a Super League still. I mean, yeah, it looks like right now as we speak, Juventus, Real Madrid and Barcelona are the ones, and this could change obviously later in the day, Who they're the ones who seem to still be attached to this, but even Juventus acknowledging like you can't have a Super League <laughs> with just three teams involved. Though part of me still wonders if, if Florentino Perez is holding on to the idea of uh, El Clasico every midweek <laughs> just <laughs> for the length of a season every season. Um, That's all they're left with. <laughs> do you think we'll see punishments for the clubs and the figures that led this breakaway? That's the key thing. Do they just welcome the peace and the fact that they're all back together harmoniously? Or is there a sense of deterrence a deterrence against insurrection within the football community to stop these threats persisting because i think that's the thing like something needs to be done to stop constantly them threatening and cajoling and um disrupting the system i mean that was something i think reflected in some of the statements like from john henry the liverpool owner whose video looked like a bit of a hostage video where he sort of <laughs> issued this apology it, it was a sense that um he accepted, they disrupted their teams. And this is one of the key things. It was the ownership taking this decision while disregarding the players and the managers. And actually just thinking back to the previous question about what brought it down. I think one of the key moments was on Tuesday night when the Liverpool players, led by the captain Jordan Henderson, started putting out statements in direct opposition to the ownership and resisting the Super League, backing the Champions League. We had it from Luke Shaw at Manchester United and you know we started to see more and more so from the players and players were in open revolt at Liverpool against John Henry and Jurgen Klopp had criticised it as well earlier in the week uh, Pep Guardiola on Tuesday morning had resisted it it was interesting that Manchester City's own Twitter feed 
actually yep. put out the quotes from Pep on Tuesday. Um, you know, they didn't sort of censor those. Liverpool did with some quotes on Monday from Jurgen Klopp. So, it, you know, it just showed the pressure that, that, that was building in, in, in all directions. And on top of it, we're trying to just assess what is, what is going on in all this. And, um, you know, back to the question, you know, what does happen? It was interesting, actually, the UEFA president, Alexander Sheffrin's statement. He put one out, particularly for Manchester City, because they were the first to put right. a statement out withdrawing and sort of praising them as a club just a year after UEFA were trying to ban them from the Champions League, which shows <laughs> exactly how things can quickly turn around. He's sort of welcoming them as a key part of the football community, part of the Champions League. Well, just a year ago, they were sort of the, um, you know, cast aside as the, you know, and punished as part of FFP. And it was interesting that Sheffrin did single out the English owners on Tuesday morning in his speech at the UEFA Congress, appealing to them to just accept they've made a mistake to, to, to perform an about turn and to rejoin the, the Champions League and it was interesting it was the English owners then who went first and uh, yeah his statement reflected that and um, yeah it will be interesting to see where things do go from here it's hard to see points deductions because that might sort of up the ante in terms of the Premier League in, if there was sort of some punitive action against the clubs and maybe they will welcome the peace but maybe they will be chastened and you know, they need to sort of recognise the fact they are a collective and not just sort of identifying themselves as the big six constantly trying to um, exert their power because it was only last year, a few months ago, that they had this project big picture where under the guise of benevolence again, John Henry, the Glazers, were all part of the move to try to take back more control of the Premier League under the guise of filtering money down the leagues and some of the same advisors involved in that were those involved in this uh, Super League as well. And that failed because the fans were opposed and there was a groundswell of opposition, and so did this as well. Yeah, that's why I'm having a hard time believing some of the the apologies coming out now from people like Henry. Um, Ed Woodward We were caught, apologies. (laughs) Ed Woodward announced he is leaving Manchester United. Is that connected in any way to this Super League fiasco? And do you think we'll see other top club executives have to leave their jobs as a result? And is there any any possibility that any owners might want to get out now? Yeah, on Ed Woodward, the the word from being pushed from parts of Manchester United is trying to be, oh, it was always planned, it was always necessary, but it was leaking out, it was starting to emerge. So, you know, we had to confirm it. And the question is, where did the... You know, where, where did that emanate from? And he's always planning to stay until the end of the year. But the timing just seems too coincidental, just as this huge strategy that he was overseeing was imploding because he is someone, you know, who's fully plugged into the banking community, former JP Morgan himself, and they were providing the uh, financing for this Super League, the €4 billion Euros to underwrite it with loans. And obviously there's been many questions over Ed Woodward's leadership for many years, eight years now, he's overseen the post-Alex Ferguson era. They've not won the Premier League since then. So much has been spent on players, so many bad decisions. Um, they um, really have um, you know, fumbled the, the post-Alex Ferguson transition, so many managers they've gone through. And it's a question of how long you can continue making missteps and the fact completely botching this plan. Obviously, Joel Glazer was co-owner was uh, instrumental in it too and it'll be interesting interesting to see if he does see it out until the end of the year or if actually on a quiet day it's just announced that actually he's leaving far sooner and with some sort of he's staying on as an advisor or something so it sort of smooths the exit and in terms of the ownership notice you've got him like Ian Wright calling for the Cronkies to 
sell up and leave Arsenal. He's someone who will do work for the club at times and, you know, someone clearly backing them. And, you know, it's interesting, he takes a stand. You know, he, he goes on the fan side with that. You've got the... Um, must the Manchester United Sports Group has up the ante again today, calling for the Glazers to to leave, which is interesting. You might think, well, they're agitators anyway. They've always sort of opposed the Glazers and and they want them out. But when I was trying to speak to them and get them to go on the record at the start of the year to discuss the ta- the Tampa Bay Bucks being in the Super Bowl to discuss the Glazers in terms of profiling them, must were very reticent to go on the record at all and to say anything because. Effectively, they've been brought in the tent by United. Mm. They have actually engaged them on, on fun issues, on things around the stadium and, and found a sort of a, a truce in terms of that sense, at the fact they hadn't been listened to before, but under um, Ed Woodward, they, they had gradually started to, to engage. But now they have actually you know, said today, very clearly on Wednesday, that they, they do want them out and they want them to sell to the right people. They want the fans to, to have a say of things. But ultimately, the Glazers don't have to. They've got control of the club. It's listed on the New York Stock Exchange, but the voting rights are within the family and they're still doing pretty well out of it. Um, you know, They often sell off chunks of shares. They generate money for themselves out of that. But there's no pressure to do so. I mean, you know, you think the, the point might be unless they sort of saw the value of the club diminishing, which would be impacted by a downturn in TV rights. Um, potentially, that was so significant there wouldn't be a recovery. But you know, there is no no indication yet, and they they seem to sort of just shake off any fan opposition. It doesn't affect them. They don't try and engage with the fans, the Glazers. So they just sit it out and hopefully watch the money roll in 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 their viewpoint. And that's what what annoys fans. Let's take a quick break from our interview with Rob Harris, and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga and France's Ligue 1, currently the best title races in Europe, and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable or satellite system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Ligue 1, Copa Libertadores, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch top leagues from Austria, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports in English and Spanish, the Women's Soccer Channel, ATA Football, Goal TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. I mean, it's interesting to me, speaking to you from New York, um, you have this being superly being pushed by several American owners at Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Milan. You've got Super League being bankrolled by an American bank, JP Morgan, and the proposal itself is basically a distillation of American sports business concepts. Is this a repudiation of Americanness by European soccer? Oh, absolutely. I think that's the sense I'd always got constantly. The fact it was the likes of Joel Glazer at Manchester United trying to push through the American closed system. They wanted that certainty. They don't want to be scrambling to qualify for the Champions League, not knowing what their finances are going to look like the next year. And when, you know, you're talking potentially north of 100 million euros 
each year at stake by getting in the Champions League or not. That is a significant uh, um, slice of the revenue at the club. And if you know you're going to be in a competition like the Super League every year, then you remove that element of doubt and risk that, that is there by not qualifying. But of course, with that risk, you actually get the excitement of the Premier League. The race for top four right. is what is keeping us engrossed at the moment. We know City are going to win the, the league unless they have a monumental collapse with their eight-point advantage over United with six games to go. But with the race for top four, it's there. It's there. Can West Ham sneak it? Um, will Chelsea drop out? Will Liverpool still find their way in? Will Tottenham still manage to somehow close the gap with a 29-year-old interim manager in Ryan Mason. And that's what's going to keep us going for, for, you know, for the coming weeks. And, you know, that's what also produces the value. It's why the broadcasters do want to, to pay for it. I mean, there's been so many dodged games between the top six this season. You know, I think, you know, Manchester Derby has that, which is completely um, dreary and empty stadium and, and goalless too. Yeah, I, I don't know how many people had actually followed what my, the knock-on effects might have been for like the Premier League, but like if there were no stakes for the top four, I certainly could see an American-style end-of-season playoff system set up like we see in the NBA or the NFL, because otherwise there wouldn't be much at stake, right? And, and of course, things do change. Leagues do change. Uh, you know, some leagues have the split season, so... You know, in Scotland, when the, the top half of the table splits off and they play each other in terms of determining things like European places, then that exists. And, you know, there are constantly changes to competitions in a way that I don't think we get so regularly in the um, US. Things like the League Cup and the FA Cup. They ditch replays in the FA Cup for some rounds to try to change the schedule. The Champions League has actually changed a lot from the old European Cup concept of just being domestic champions. Then the Champions League in 1992, we've, we've had one group stage, two group stages. Then even last season, they introduced the temporary format, the final eight, which I was uh, fortunate enough to be in Lisbon to see. And um, that sort of gained some um, favour in part probably because of the quarterfinals being pretty exciting then <laughs> so that was people's introduction to it and the, and the semis then being uh, um, less thrilling and so changes are actually quite often possible we're going to have a third European competition the Europa Conference League next season so there is this sort of constant state of flux so in that you can see why the owners particularly the American owners of the Premier League clubs would think actually the game can be rife for change because formats are so open to be changed so often. So, you know, that, that, that is why. I mean, you think back to the old English system as well. They used to have to elect members to join the professional leagues, to join the fourth tier um, from, from the non-league. So, you know, there is that, <laughs> that, that, that sense where there is so often, you know, reforms of the system. Before the Super League fell apart, UEFA went ahead and ratified major changes in the Champions League format starting in 2024. You mentioned those earlier. But that also includes allowing two teams that didn't even earn their way into the tournament. Do you think UEFA will pull back on those changes now that the Super League clubs have so much less leverage? Yeah, it's going to be one of the key things. Actually, it's the safety net, and that's what angered some of the Leagues outside of the Big Five in particular, where you've got um, protected places for the likes of potentially Liverpool this season. If they were to finish outside the top four and the new format was in place next season, obviously it's not due to be until 2024, then effectively they would get into the competition. Um, or 
perhaps actually UEFA at the top level would quite like that assurance of knowing that the big teams will be in there and uh, you know it's a sort of pathway through so I think that's something that's going to be up for grabs also the talks have been around the the joint venture over the sale of the TV rights as well which was still up for discussion and but now it's what happens to some of these key figures which we're trying to assess. Andrea Agnelli was, until last week, the head of the European Club Association, one of the most significant and powerful figures. And yet, of course, he had to leave his position at UEFA Exco. He had to leave his position as head of the European Club Association. And then you're left with the administration at the ECA that used to answer to him. And they had to sort of set up a new, a new leadership uh, very quickly. And it's what happens to something like the ECA. Do they sort of you know, return to normality or... If it was me, the distrust would always be there. You've got to prove that you're, you are trustworthy again in the fact that you went off deceptively to do this and ignored the ECA. And do they sort of return to the room um, quite chastened? A couple more questions here with Rob Harris. Really appreciate you taking this time. Where are we now with Johnny Infantino's expanded FIFA Club World Cup? And, and how is that connected to this? Well, we could actually look to the African Super League, first of all, because it's something he'd been advocating in the last year or so, setting up a pan-African club competition. And there is already a Champions League run by CAF. So that was brought into sharp focus this week as he's sort of vaguely, and that is the keyword, quite vaguely, being critical of the Super League breakaway. He appeared at the UEFA Congress on Tuesday morning and he, you know, expressed the support for the open competitions while at the same time of course backing this African Super League and also he has been accused directly by the La Liga president Javier Tebas of being involved in talks with um, Florentino Perez about breakaway competitions FIFA has never denied it the FIFA statement in January when the Super League plans first leaked he um, it was in the name of FIFA it was the it was threatening club players with expulsion not being able to play in the World Cup if they played for these breakaway teams, but it wasn't Infantino's name attached to it. So Infantino's motives are interesting, and then at the same time, yes, he has this plan for a club World Cup, a bigger club World Cup, up up to twenty four teams from seven, and it shows he actually does desire bigger and better things. He just like some of these owners of clubs, he's always constantly trying to reinvent competitions and he wants to have his imprint stamped across the game so far he's expanded the men's and women's world cups that's one thing he's done but he wants the new competitions he talked about a global nations league a couple of years ago again a bit like with the super league it was all hinging on financing from uh, investors and in that case potentially ones linked to saudi arabia Um, and he had hoped for the club world cup to begin in June 2021, when we saw him in Qatar at the end of 2019 at the Club World Cup, he was talking about so many investors were wanting to invest in the new Club World Cup. He had loads of them. And it became apparent in the following weeks that it was didn't seem to have the assurance of the finances there because the um, structures and format of the new Club World Cup was due to start to be put in place. They were only a year away from it being in China. So the pandemic allowed them to suspend it, which was a, 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 a convenient get out at a time when there were questions over whether the finances were in place. But then, yeah, they obviously have the next space maybe on the form, the calendar to bring it in in 2025. It would make sense as a potential test event for the North American World Cup. But certainly he wants to introduce this bigger and better World Cup, which, you know, I think think has its merits. I think the current Club World Cup with seven teams is pretty dull. I was there in Qatar. Um, It's actually the first time I'd ever been to a Club World Cup. I've never sort of... (laughs) 
deemed it sort of one of those priorities, which is more interesting with it being in, in Qatar. And I think he has a priority to get a Women's Club World Cup underway. I think that would actually have more value to the game because one of the key yeah. things needed is more competitive games of global interest between women's teams as well and that's where FIFA um, can play a role and yeah that's so we're, we're still waiting for the for the launch of it and, and again it would you know I'd prefer to see a um, a bigger official club world cup with a FIFA title on the line and some of these pre-season competitions where we're sort of told that they matter but we know they don't I, I want to Get your sense of how long you think it might be before we see another Super League proposal or attempted breakaway, and and maybe they would be a lot smarter the next time about how they get their ducks in a row and 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 do it with the health of the pyramid actually really in mind, not just self-serving statements that they had made in the last week. Could we see this again? Like, how soon could that be? I think they'll constantly keep on plotting, finding ways of reintroducing it at some point, and it will always exist. <laughs> and there will always be forming plans and, and, and various strategies, because, of course, UEFA sells the Champions League in three-year right cycles. So every time the right cycles come come up, then they'd lock in the format for that. So, you know, that's something of um, considerable note to watch out for. And in terms of the strategy, you... It was an inept PR plan <laughs> that was in place. Yes. And the question is, it's not the actual PR people necessarily to blame. It's are the owners themselves listening to the advice and actually recognising they need to engage in public relations. And that's where they completely fell down. They saw no need to have to really significantly engage with the media and actually to be bombarding us with the positive case and blitzing things in terms of like an actual strategy where, I don't know, they sort of, flooded the zone in terms of like interviews stating the positive case but instead as so often I see it repeatedly in football with things at FIFA the Premier League they allow the critics to fill the void critics with legitimate arguments against a project or against a certain hiring or against a certain strategy because they hide in the shadows and hiding in the shadows does not work when you've got so many vocal fans and um, I mean I suppose I'm interested in terms of what is the long-term impact or medium-term impact of the mobilisation against the Super League. The fact is, the protest by the players, and we saw it by some Leeds United players with T-shirts on, we saw it by the Liverpool players we talked about with their social media posts, follows on from those players in the World Cup qualifiers last month who um, protested against Qatar, some quite vaguely, right. but they had human rights on their T-shirt. And this sort of assertion of player power and the player voice is something actually for governing bodies to, to to watch out for and to be aware that actually they 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 can't disregard the views of fans and and stakeholders and players in particular because they have a platform and the platform of the players help to bring down this um this this super league project and you know we've seen actually players have a voice in in all this and they were left out of these discussions by the owners. Lastly here, your new podcast Sport Unlocked is in my opinion a real welcome addition to the landscape. But, you know, I've always been struck by how well you get along with the other people on your show. Uh, cuz that includes uh, one of your competitors, the London Times, uh, often another of your competitors from the New York Times, Tarek Panja. How do you guys manage that? 
Like that ability to be so collegial when you're really competing tooth and nail against each other for news. Yeah, that's an interesting point as it was sort of see from the outside. And I suppose because we've sort of known each other for so long. And I suppose there's a certain sense that we are in all the same places together normally when we're out on the road. And a natural sense that, you know, some get some stories, some get the other. And occasionally you, you might know when you're actually colliding on the same path or you know you're at the same thing and you know you're with the same people but what we thought was there was a a void in actually explaining some of these more complex issues at times um you know I'd actually already had the you know some ideas for a podcast I, I'd actually registered all these names about a year ago uh, when I thought of them but I had them on hold and then Martin then naturally approaches and sort of suggests a podcast as well actually I've already got this sort of holding plan or or name at least underway and what I soon realized actually as we sort of did it that the value is in of all of our voices on it you know in terms of that sort of conversational podcast rather than it being a sort of an interview based one which you do so well and so engagingly that you actually uh, you know when it's sort of analytical and you need to sort of go through things that are on a news basis that uh, that it helps and you know there's a lot of pods analyzing the week in soccer in Europe the various leagues the on-pitch stuff and sort of going through that but we thought actually to bring in some of the stories often deemed quite boring and try to sort of give them life there's a market for um, in terms of just interest we're doing it just to sort of get people interested in some of the sports news issues and there's no big production behind it there's no um, production studio it's just um, the three of us we often sort of edit me editing the audio as well together <laughs> and getting some video clips up as well from it just mm-hmm. to sort of bring people involved you know we try not make the segments too long when we know actually we're sort of having to introduce people into things that they're not maybe naturally wanting to hear lots from whether it's things like a a, um, a an election in one of the um, world confederations or some of the worlds of the IOC as well and um, you know sort of reflect on we've been going now a few months that um, it's heartening to sort of hear some of the uh, s- s- some of the interest and also to, to help shine a light on uh, on how decisions really are reached in football and in other sports as well and um, how we um, you know how they're reached and who some of the key players are involved and get them used to it which uh, you know it's interesting the first one talks about some of the big issues coming up in 2021 and the first one in January talks a lot about the Super League and here we are now. (laughs) I can't recommend it highly enough uh, for our listeners because I, I we've seen this week how important this Super League topic has been the amount of interest and engagement is immense. And these types of issues you guys explain on your podcast as well as anybody or better. So I, I, I really appreciate you guys doing this. I think it's a great idea. Um, and really want to thank you for coming on the show. Rob Harris is the global sports correspondent for the Associated Press. He co-hosts the podcast Sport Unlocked. Rob, thanks so much for joining me. Great to join you. Thanks for the great plugs. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Rob Harris as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.